Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before I introduce this week's guest, George Schultz, I wanted to thank all of you out there who are listening for your support and help in spreading the word about EconTalk. And I appreciate all of your suggestions and feedback. The volume of mail sometimes means I can't get back to all of you personally, but I read every email. And please keep in touch. Let me know what you're thinking, your ideas, your reactions. Mail at econtalk.org is our address. One topic I'd like to hear about from you in particular is the stuff we put up at the website at econtalk.org, the additional readings and the podcast highlights. Are those helpful to you? Do you use them? All these features are costly, so I'd love to know if you find them helpful and useful. Interviewing George Schultz was very stimulating. He was on his way out of town, so the interview is a little shorter than usual. So I thought I'd introduce it with some thoughts about the role of leadership in history. It's really a classic question. Do people change history? Or do various forces lead to particular leaders being almost inevitable in their actions and views? At the heart of my conversation with Schultz is the fall of the Soviet Union. Was that fall the result of the unique leadership skills of Schultz, Reagan, Gorbachev, and others? Or do broader economic and political forces explain that fall? Certainly both play a role. But as I spoke to Schultz, I thought of a recent column by David Brooks at the New York Times about George Bush's view of leadership. Here's what Brooks had to say about Bush's view. Quote, he's convinced leaders have the power to change societies, even in a place as chaotic as Iraq. Good leadership makes all the difference. Brooks goes on to say about Bush, he's confident in his ability to read other leaders, who has courage, who has a chip on his shoulder. And he's confident that in reading the individual character of leaders, he is reading the tablet that really matters. History is driven by the club of those in power. When farsighted leaders change laws and institutions, they have the power to transform people. Then Brooks gives Tolstoy's view. It's the alternative view. It's very Hayekian, and uh, Brooks says it very well. Quote, Tolstoy had a very different theory of history. Tolstoy believed great leaders are puffed-up popinjays. They think their public decisions shape history, but really it is the everyday experiences of millions of people which organically and chaotically shape the destiny of nations from the bottom up. According to this view, societies are infinitely complex. They can't be understood or directed by a group of politicians in the White House or the Green Zone. Societies move and breathe on their own through the jostling of mentalities and habits. Politics is a thin crust on the surface of culture. Political leaders can only play a tiny role in transforming a people, especially when the integral fabric of society has dissolved. Close quote. Again, both views, the views that individuals shape history through their extraordinary leadership ability versus the view that history is transformed from the bottom up through forces that are beyond the control of any one person. Both views obviously have truth to them. Extraordinary leaders and diplomats put their own stamp on events and change the course of history. But how much of that is real and how much of that change is inevitable? I found myself thinking about that question when Schultz reminisces in this interview about the importance of Reagan and Gorbachev's personal relationship and how much it contributed to the transformation of the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union and to the changes in the Soviet Union that came. 
Was that relationship really important? Was that a key part of that transformation? Or is it just an ex post explanation of which there will always be many? If you enjoy this interview, you might enjoy Schultz's memoir, Turmoil and Triumph. It's long, but much of it's fascinating, and you can dip in and read what interests you. The meeting in Reykjavik that Schultz discusses in this interview is particularly fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. The next two scheduled podcasts are with Tyler Cowan and Richard Epstein. My guest today is George Schultz, the Thomas W. and Susan B. Ford Distinguished Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He was Secretary of State in the Reagan administration from 1982 to 1989, playing a central role in ending the Cold War. He's the former dean of the business school at the University of Chicago, the author of numerous books and articles, including the forthcoming A Citizen's Guide to Social Security and Healthcare Reform, co-written with John Chauvin. Secretary Schultz, welcome to EconTalk. Now, you have a PhD in economics, and you were a faculty member in the Department of Economics at MIT. Then you joined the business school at Chicago. You certainly give hope to the rest of us that a background in economics is not a hopeless impediment to making a contribution to the world. How did your background as an economist play a role in your career, particularly as Secretary of State? Did it come in handy? Was it, was it useful? I think my background in economics was extremely helpful to me. First of all, because there are a lot of issues that come up that are economic issues or have economic implications or dimensions to them. So you are helped in understanding them for that reason. But then it's also true that economics is sort of inherently a strategic science. That is, economists are accustomed to think that you do something today and you don't see any immediate result, it happens with a lag. So you have to learn to think that way, that you need to consider that there are things you need to do, and they're not necessarily going to pay off immediately, but if you keep at them, they will pay off. And it may be in an entirely different area than something strictly economics. Sometimes I found in an economic area that Politicians get very impatient, and I coined the phrase, an economist's lag is a politician's nightmare. <laughs> That's true, I think. You were, um, you were in the economics department at MIT in the 50s, and in the business school there. Was that an exciting place to be? Both MIT is a terrific place, wonderful department of economics. And it's, it is today. When I went there, there were some stars, Paul Samuelson in particular, yeah. my great friend Bob Solo. But those people are now emeritus, but MIT has had the ability to rejuvenate itself, and there are new stars, and MIT continues to be first class. And then I went to the University of Chicago, a rather different way of thinking, but still very strong economics, and I had the privilege of being an associate of Milton Friedman and George Stigler and such people, and that had a big impact on me. So I've had a lot of economics drilled into me. Now, Milton and George had a very different view of the political process. Uh, Milton, I wouldn't say immersed himself in it, but he certainly immersed himself in the world of public policy. George 
was more likely to stand off on the sidelines and and um, laugh about it, analyze it, occasionally laugh about it, occasionally cry about it. Did they influence your your career in any way? The two of them? I don't. I don't know. I, but I, I uh, George had a big interest in public policy. In fact, it, of course, he was a great in the history of economic thought, but and price theory and such things, but he had a great interest in industrial organization and all of that, the antitrust area and so on. And of course, Milton was had big interests in public policy, but he had these uh, immense contributions to uh, economic um, economics as such, not having to do with policy. So, but anyway, they're both extraordinarily able and interesting people and I got to be good friends. George Stigler and I played endless rounds of golf together. And Who won? So we see, well, uh, it varied. It varied. We were both very competitive. I bet. You're not a tennis player, though. Yes, I played tennis and George and, and uh, Milton played tennis a lot. I knew that. And Milton was uh, tough as a tennis player because while he didn't hit the ball hard, he got everything back. And it's just the way he argued. Everything always comes back. He never gives up. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I surprised? Yeah. Um, now, did you expect to leave the ivory tower, the, the world of academics, or was that expected for you? Did that your career path is really right? Obviously, quite extraordinary. The the, the life experiences you've had, the achievements. Um, well, I didn't uh, set out to be in the government, but I was always interested in the use of economics, and that was my orientation always. So when I was invited to serve for a year on the as a so-called senior staff economist at the President's Council of Economic Advisors in the Eisenhower administration, I was pleased to accept, and it was, it was a really um, very educational year for me both in terms of the role of economics as it was played in the public policy arena. And then I learned a great deal about the government statistics and how they were put together and what I should cross my fingers about and what I make of all the revisions and so on. Most of them, I assume, would, would fall into that cross-your-fingers category. Uh, Incidentally, I think one of the things we should realize in this country is that our statistics are vastly obsolete. The GNP accounts were categories were put together by some brilliant people at the National Bureau of Economic Research way back in the 1920s or so. And these are the same classifications we use today. And the economy today bears almost no resemblance to the economy then. We're constantly fitting new things into old spaces and when you don't have a space, you call it a service. And then we say we have a service economy. That's just because we don't know what else to call them. Right. And I think it would be a good thing to go to Marty Felstein or somebody at the National Bureau and say, how about an encore? Start with a fresh sheet of paper and see what you would come up with. It's a great idea. Uh, GMP are the ones that you pick on. I the things that the Bureau of Labor Statistics tries to measure frustrate me. The way we measure median wage drives me uh, drives me crazy. Um, you don't look crazy. It doesn't drive you crazy, does no, it? No. Well, in the 
in the quiet moments when I'm by myself <laughs> is when I get manic about it. Um, what role does international trade play in, in diplomacy, and what role should diplomacy play in international trade? Given your experience as a Secretary of State, do you favor restrictions on trade to, to achieve strategic ends? Do you think they're effective? I'm thinking about embargoes, uh, various leverage you might put on trading partners. Do you think those are effective? And is it effective to expand trade as a way of affecting uh, international goals? I think the use of trade sanctions have limited use. If they have an effect, it's a short-term effect. Unless somehow they are very, very broad and adhered to, but they break down. Look what happened in Iraq. Mm -hmm. The sanctions there were, were breaking down right and left. But sometimes they can have an impact. I think the most the greatest impact actually comes more from financial um, restrictions rather than trade sanctions myself. And I noticed that in the South Africa case, that when the South African businessmen who were very well established suddenly come to London and they find they can't get loans and they're not quite welcome in the clubs anymore and their currency is starting to deteriorate, then that really hits home. That's an interesting example. But in general, obviously, I think it's true that we have benefited greatly in the United States and the whole world has from the big opening of markets that's taken place since World War II. They have a great appeal, though, the embargo uh, weapon just, has a great appeal to politicians because nobody dies. You don't pay any money out, and it looks like you're doing something. Yeah, and they, they think they're doing something and it doesn't cost anything, but it does cost you. Because if you get too fast and loose with it, as happened in some periods of time, people lose confidence and they say, maybe the U.S. is not a reliable supplier. Mm -hmm. And there is this tendency. I wrote a little article once years ago criticizing the Carter administration in this regard. I called it light switch diplomacy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's not like a light switch. You can't turn it on and off. And you cause trade or investment to stop somewhere, and it just doesn't automatically turn back on again. So you have to be careful. Do you think our increase in trade with China over the last decade improves our chances of liberalization there and reduces the chances of military confrontation, or do you think it's irrelevant? Oh, I think the, what's happened to the Chinese economy and the way it has happened, that is, you don't have the kind of growth that they see in China without having relative openness in your economy. And when you have an open economy that way, people know what's going on. And you have a wholly different kind of knowledge base in your population. So I don't think it's a question of whether China will change. If you have been to China, as I have periodically for the last 30 years or so, you see that China has changed in gigantic ways, socially and politically, not just in economic terms. How about foreign aid? Um, I worry 
that foreign aid often entrenches um, thugs and actually stunts growth because of corruption. What are your thoughts on it as a, as a diplomatic weapon? Do you think it's effective? What do you think its goals are, and what do you think it usually achieves? Well, you have to distinguish if you're talking about uh, military assistance to friends and allies, obviously that can be very effective, and you help them build their armed forces, and you develop a capacity for working with them so your things are compatible and so on, and that that can be effective. But that's not, I don't think, the kind of aid you're no, I'm talking, talking about. about. You're aid. talking about efforts. So-called economic aid. Efforts to help it's... countries uh, improve themselves. And I think it's, uh, if it's done right, it can be uh, helpful, but it's hard and often is not done right. And I think the emphasis that's being given now in saying, unless governance is right, you're not going to help very much with whatever aid you get. And clearly the countries, China has not had the expansion it's had because of foreign aid. Correct. It's had it because it's changed its policies and provided a, a stable uh, environment for the economy to flourish. So those are the key ingredients. I think it's uh, one of the facts right now that people don't seem to understand that the world right now is seeing expansion practically everywhere, some faster than others. But the IMF published a table recently on the world economic outlook, and it had some countries and some regions and so on. Anyway, there are no minus signs on it. It's a golden moment. Yeah. Probably a more <laughs> promising moment than any in our in the history of the world. So it's important not to throw that away and not to succumb to the threats that we hear all the time to have uh, protection once again raise its head. I mean I I, I certainly agree that this is really a, a, an unparalleled time of economic prosperity and unappreciated economic prosperity. But, but on the foreign aid issue, which I am a skeptic of its value, the economic aid, do you think that its failure is due to uh, negligence or it's really being done to serve another end? Historically, in the United States history, uh, I think most people like the, most voters like to think it's idealistic that we're trying to help people. It doesn't seem to be doing that, which leads to the possibility that that's not the goal. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Is it a strategic weapon? The, that's a better I, way to say no, it. No, I don't think. I think it's been put forward as a goal uh, with the sense that the better off people are around the world, the better it's going to be for us and for everybody else. And it's not a good thing to have countries that are impoverished and all of the disease and misery that goes with that. And so I think there is a tendency to say, well, isn't there something we can do that would help? And as you've been suggesting, sometimes you just give money, that's not necessarily a help. You can even set back. On the other hand, um, 
Funds that are provided to help people reform themselves or sometimes provide some assistance to the educational process or infrastructure at critical moments can be useful. And sometimes it can be harmful. I think a lot of cases when food is given and it's given, then you price the local farmers out of the market because they can't provide something at no cost. And that, in the long run, does a lot of harm. It's a horrible thing. Turning to your um, to more specific experiences, I want to ask you about um, in the 80s when you were Secretary of State, you and President Reagan put human rights at the forefront of your diplomatic efforts with the Soviet Union. Why did you do that? What was the strategic component and how much uh, of a role did, did morality play in your, your personal motivation there and in the president's, in your mind? Well, I think we both believe, believed and believe uh, that human beings should be treated decently wherever. So that's an underlying factor. And then if you want to see the relationship between the United States and the then Soviet Union improve, you know that as long as the treatment of people was the way it was in the Soviet Union, you really never could quite have that kind of uh, compatibility. President Reagan was a believer that change was possible. You remember the original conception of our strategy was called containment. And the idea of containment was we should contain them. And if we could contain them long enough, it would cause them to look inward and they would not like what they see and they would change. Now that sort of morphed into what was called detente. detente Underneath it had a different theory. Detente said, we're here, they're there, that's life. The name of the game is peaceful coexistence. Now, Ronald Reagan never accepted that, nor did I. We preferred the original conception. And so if you think things can change, that means the pat you think the pattern of governance can change. And the way treat people are treated is an essential ingredient in that pattern of governance. And so we worked at it. In fact, the first deal we made with the Soviet Union was a human rights deal. And the nature of it was such that hardly anybody even knows about it. Tell us about it. What was the nature of it? It happened, the nature of it was that we got people who had rushed into our embassy way back in the Carter administration out and allowed to immigrate. And the basic deal was, we'll let them out if you don't crow. So they got out and Ronald Reagan said no, nothing. And there were a lot of speculation about how and didn't, can you imagine the president who'd, who's got enough sense not to be beating his breast and say, look what I did? Well, Reagan, was uh, a man, uh, and I, I think it must have convinced the Soviets that if you deal with him and he gives you his word on something, you can take it to the bank. Now, I was very politically aware in those years. Some of our listeners are younger. 
one of the big issues of that time was, we're talking about human rights, a lot of people might not know what the nature of that was. Of course, there were many forms of, of oppression in the Soviet Union at the time. One of them was a very simple thing, that you weren't allowed to leave. And there was a large group of, uh, of the Jewish population in the Soviet Union that wanted to emigrate, and when they expressed that interest, they were punished, they, were, they lost their jobs, they weren't allowed to leave. And my impression at the time was that the pressure that you put publicly on the Soviet Union, pointing out this embarrassing fact of the way they treated folks, created tension in the relationship. The, the Soviets didn't like it. Is that true? And, and did, was that tension counterproductive or productive for your other efforts? Was it a, was it a stick? Was it a carrot? Because on the surface, it looked like a, a very costly policy to be pursuing. What you've just said is that, well, you, know, it was, you were hoping for an evolution in Soviet society. That, that's a pretty ambitious goal. The short-run effect was pretty costly, or was it not? No, I think it worked in combination with other things. We, we set out to create an agenda with the Soviet Union. And we said our agenda should be arms control. They wanted to have that, and we wanted to have that. We had bilateral issues with them. We had issues about what we called regional issues, like Afghanistan and so on. And then we had human rights. And they resisted discussion of human rights, saying this was none of our business. Eternal matter. However, they had signed the Helsinki Accords. And the Helsinki Accords... Uh, they agreed to undertakings in this regard, and so we could say, we have a right to know if you're keeping up with these undertakings, you signed this piece of paper. Uh, and we kept at it, and when uh, Gromyko left and Shevardnadze came and Gorbachev came, there was a, something of a shift of gears, and they agreed at Reykjavik that human rights would be a recognized, legitimate point on our agenda. And they said, you're going to criticize us, we're going to criticize you. We said, fine. We get criticized all the time. We were used to it. They weren't and, so used to it. <laughs> but we had, we, we Shevardnadze, my counterpart, made a remark to me once. He said, George, we might do something about some of these things you're talking about, but not to please you only if they make sense from our point of view. So I thought about that a lot, and I talked with President Reagan about it a lot, and developed an approach, which I wrote out very carefully, and then read out to him slowly, so that his note-takers could take it down accurately. And the basic line of argument was, that we are in and moving more and more rapidly further into the information age. And it's a new thing that's hitting the world, hitting us, hitting you, hitting everybody. And in this age, you will be handicapping yourself very badly if you run a closed, compartmented society. People have to communicate to get the benefits of it. And so that means it's to your advantage to have people be able to move around more and to communicate more freely. And 
they thought about that carefully, and we argued about it back and forth a lot. But I think it made a dent. That's a beautiful. Then, of course, we did have. We I went. To, we, I always uh, had meetings with dissidents. There was a well-publicized seder in our embassy in Moscow on one of my trips there. And the next day, Gorbachev criticized me for meeting with all those bad Jews. And I said, well, have I got a deal for you? I got a big airplane on the tarmac. If you don't like them, put them on the airplane. We'll take them off your hands. And he changed the subject. <laughs> but uh, anyway, but he turned out to be a good uh, interlocutor on this. And eventually, uh, people were allowed to leave. And now I think people who want to leave Russia are free to leave. Well, it's uh, I think it's an incredible, uh, incredible story. The the uh, your remark about the information age in the uh, in those days, a copy machine was a dangerous thing for the Soviets, for the Soviet government. Um, we had a, a little funny incident at the Reykjavik meeting between Presidents Reagan and Gorbachev. We had something or other that we wanted to get copy. And there was no fax machine. There was no of our modern copiers. And Akramayov, the marshal of the Soviet Union, was there. And he laughed and said, give it to us. We've got a little old mimeograph machine here. <laughs> the old-fashioned way. The old-fashioned way. Yeah, that was, uh, and I, I bet even those were, were guarded very carefully by the regime in those years. I just read that. Uh, it's, you, you talk about that in your memoir, Turmoil and Triumph, which is uh, just a, remarkable book, especially the story of the, the Reykjavik meeting. Now, the Soviet Union at that meeting made concessions that you talk about as being extremely dramatic and in our interest, but they attached strings to them about, about uh, missile defense, what so-called Star Wars. And you and President Reagan rejected those concessions because you thought the costs were too high, but you've been vindicated as that being the right decision. But the media fallout at the time was rather intense. What was that period like in terms of um, coping with it, and how how did you and the president talk about it? Did it was it a was it a mutual uh, consolation society, or did you hope for the no, best? I think that um, there was sort of an initial disappointment because there were all these things that somehow didn't come to pass. But after you take a deep breath and think about it a couple of hours, you say a huge amount of important stuff was put on the table and basically agreed to. And once that happens, you don't get it back off the table again. And in fact, as time went on, all of the things that were agreed to at Reykjavik came into being. Did, so it was did, a very productive meeting, probably a seminal meeting. Yeah, and I, I recommend uh, the book in that particular passage. In too. fact, at one time after both uh, President Gorbachev and I had left office, he was here visiting at Stanford, and we were sitting in the backyard of my home here on the Stanford campus, just the two of us talking with the interpreter. And I said, when you and I entered office, the Cold War was about as cold as it could get. And when we left office, it was basically over. So what do you think was the turning point? And he didn't hesitate a second. He said, Reykjavik. Hmm. I said, why do you say Reykjavik? He said, because for the first time, really, the leaders sat down for an extended period 
and talk to each other, converse with each other about all the important issues. And there it's possible to make changes, whereas staff people bargaining never could have broken through that way. Did Reagan anticipate the end of the Soviet Union? Yes, he did, explicitly. You should read the speech he gave at Westminster in London in 1982. He said that communism would be on the ash heap of history and um, that uh, the change was inevitable. And people then patted him on the head and said, Joe, you'll, you'll get it later. Well, we're almost out of time. My closing question is, um, are you optimistic about the future? We're in a very difficult time uh, diplomatically. We talked earlier that the economic situation has been is unprecedentedly rosy, but um, internationally things are not, not particularly cheerful right now. Are you optimistic? Well, threats. There's a golden moment, and, and we need to have an aggressive uh, full-court press diplomacy to do everything we can to protect the golden moment and, and keep it going. So we have to watch out about energy supplies. We have to watch out about protectionism. We obviously have to be worrying about a radical Islam using the weapon of terror that can be very disruptive. If they get their hands on a nuclear weapon, it will be wildly disruptive. So we have to get control of the nuclear situation. We have to do something, I think, about climate change. There are a lot of things to do. And what they require is, uh, is a major diplomatic effort. And so I think we have to say to ourselves, we need to have a larger State Department, take more people, have more people able to spread around. and. If we have a larger number coming in, then we'll have more people of a senior sort, more capable people, and also have make it attractive for first-class political appointees to come in because they have to carry the weight of the political decisions. So we need a, a big effort here. And I might say Colin Powell reversed what was a downward uh, picture and got it going up, and we need to build on what Colin achieved. You mean in terms of how, of the infrastructure of the State Department yes, particularly? exactly. Well, my guest today has been George Schultz, the Thomas W. and Susan B. Ford Distinguished Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, a man of extraordinary achievement. Secretary Schultz, thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, for more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.